Last week, the whole message was driven by a question that was asked of me. And I love that. I love questions. You know, sometimes I get them by text, I get them by email, telephone, you know, stopping wherever. And, and, but the questions are, are just like air to me. That's, that's the inception of our dialogue. It's uh, showing me where you're thinking. And it's also showing me what's important to you because that translates to what's important to a lot of other people, too. Those questions are my kind of window into the things that everyone is processing, and so it helps me to be able to come up with topics that actually are relevant. Imagine that, a relevant topic from the pulpit. Okay, there we go. Um, So this week, I had another question, and um, this one came in through text, and it, it was just one of those questions that is so profoundly obvious that I wanted to uh, make it the topic here today. Let me just read you what this, this man wrote. He writes, how do I really get in touch with the love of God in such a manner to be able to emulate that love to others? How do I really get in touch with God's love in such a manner to emulate that love to others? And how do I know that that love is more than just a mental asset. I'm really struggling. Think about what he's asking here. Is God's love real, or is it just a thought in my head? Is really what he's asking. What a question. That's the central question, isn't it? How can we know that we're not just imagining, not just wishing, not just agreeing with others, but that this love, this God that we say that we worship, that we say that we are following, is actually real, beyond just the thoughts in our heads. For me, prayer was like this. I don't know about for you, but when I was just getting involved in the evangelical church some 30 years ago, it took me the longest time to start to get prayer, to try to understand prayer, to, to get past the, <laughs> the nagging thought that I was just talking to myself just sending words out into the darkness that it was all just in my head? Who was I talking to? That's what I kept wanting to know. And how did I know that my prayers were any good? Quote, unquote. Any good. How would I know that they were good? By the outcome of what I was praying for, by what the group was praying for, by the feelings that I had as I was praying. I found that all those were really not much better than law of averages in terms of how I felt about a prayer or the outcome of a prayer that I was praying for or that our church was praying for. And it was so difficult for me to shake the feeling that it was just going out there or everything was just happening inside my head. And I'd look to scriptures, but as we talked about last week, maddeningly, Jesus doesn't tell us things. He doesn't give us straight answers to the questions that are so important to us. He never answers a direct question with a direct answer. We talked about last week, Jesus is always comforting, but he's never really comfortable. Have you ever thought about that? He never really gives us the things that we so want in our fear as a human being, in our existential fear as a human being. We want the certainty that Jesus never provides. And why not? Is he just being a tease? No. He knows that he can't give us answers 
directly as they are being asked because such answers would be meaningless to us in the face of real life. They would just be another thought in our head if they were just planted there, even by Jesus. So, like a good author, Jesus doesn't tell us, he shows us. You know the difference between the two? You know? A newbie author will say, John angrily said. Another author will write, John pounded the book down on the desk, pointed at it, and said. What's the difference, see? Now, in our minds, we see what's going on. We know he's angry, just as we would know anyone was angry if we are actually in there. The author is showing us and not putting thoughts in our head that don't have the same kind of impact. There's an old saying that goes, give a man a fish or a woman. Let's not be sexist about this. Give someone a fish and you feed them for a day. Teach someone to fish and you feed them for a lifetime. Jesus is teaching us to fish. He even used those words, didn't he? He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He's teaching us how to fish because if we can do that, if we can start using our minds in the way that Jesus uses his mind, then we will be able to see the things he does. We will be able to glean the things that he gleans from the moments. He said, you need to be able to do the things that I'm doing, even greater things than these. How does that happen if we're getting spoon-fed each answer to each question that we have. Jesus is teaching us how to proceed. He's teaching us how to know, and know in the Aramaic sense, yada, the word for hand originally, remember? To know in Aramaic is to be able to handle something, to have intimate familiarity that comes with experience time and time again. That's the knowing of God that Jesus is talking about. It's not intellectual understanding at all. There is no certainty when Jesus gives us these answers. He's leading us in a direction that will give us the intimate familiarity to really know the Father, to know the truth about the Father's love that will make us free. He's showing us the way. He says he is the way. The way he lives, the way he breathes, the way that he relates, that is the way. The way he sees what he sees. It's a very Eastern way of teaching. Both Middle Eastern, but also Far Eastern as well. And there's a parallel between the two. And if we don't understand Jesus as an Eastern teacher, we're going to miss what he's trying to do with us. We're going to continue to look at him from a Western perspective, being frustrated by the lack of straight answers, trying to parse what is there into some kind of logical framework that will give us the certainty that we crave, but we're going to miss everything that he's about. So last August, I got invited to lunch by a friend of mine, and as we sat down at the table, he presented me with a little paper bag with the tissue paper, you know, it's a gift, and so I look inside, and there's a single flip-flop in there, and he tells me I need to put it on my head. So I obligingly put it on my head, you know, like a fool in the restaurant, but I put it on my head. But he doesn't explain anything, you know? Put the sandal on your head. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> what is he trying to tell me? You know, maybe this is just a message about humility, about not taking myself too seriously. I mean, you can't really do that with a flip-flop on your head in the middle of a restaurant, right? But he didn't explain to me what was going on. And so I just put the thing back in the, in the bag, and I thanked him for it. And I said... You know, 
I'm going to take a picture of me wearing the sandal so that you know that I wore it on my own, and I'll send it to you. And then, of course, I promptly forgot all about it, took the bag home, put it next to the bookcase, and it sat there until yesterday. And I don't know what it was about yesterday. I saw it there, and I said, you know what? I never sent him that picture. So I pull it out, and lo and behold, wrapped into the tissue, there is a sheet of paper. And I open it up, and there's this note from him. And it's like, why didn't I read this last August? You know, I didn't take the picture, and I sent it to him. But this note, it was amazing how it completely fit into the message that I wanted to give today, dealing with someone else's question, and it just all connected. Coincidence, right? See, it's, it's so interesting how, you know, that old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. It's like for some reason I just saw that bag, opened it up, and I want to read you the note. And um, just suspend all disbelief, just relax and listen to this. He writes, Frank, Frank, Pastor Frank, saw that Scott, Jerry, Marion, John, Lenny, Bubba, Nina, Orel, Francis K., and Brandon had gathered behind the worship and meeting center in the alleyway, all quarreling over a cat. Grabbing the cat by its scruff, he held it up and said, If any of you can say one word of perfect love, I will spare this cat. No one answered. So Frank killed the cat by cutting it in two. Now relax. We guarantee no animals were hurt in the making of this koan. That evening, David returned to the effect, and Frank told him what had happened. Dave removed his flip-flops, placed them on his head, and walked out. And Frank said, if you had been here, you would have spared the cat. I know what you're thinking. I've got some interesting friends, right? (laughs) And nobody killed the cat. But what my friend had done is he had taken an ancient Chinese koan, something maybe 1,200 years old that was compiled into a a group of koans uh, by a Japanese master centuries later. And if you don't know what a koan is, y'all familiar with koan? Uh, It's a a story. It's a question. It's a a riddle that by its very nature is meant to confuse and confront and show the inadequacy of the logical, rational mind by presenting something that cannot be resolved, something that makes no rational sense. What he had done is he had taken this koan and restated it and put it into our vernacular here. In the original, it was the monks in a monastery from the East Hall and the West Halls who were fighting over the cat. And the master, Nansen, comes in and holds up the cat and says, if you can say one word, I will spare the cat. And no one says a word. And then when another master... Jansen comes in, comes back in for the evening. He tells him the story, and he puts his sandals on his head and walks out. And he is told, if you had been here, you could have spared the cat. Now, when we hear that, it makes no sense to us. What in the world is going on? What is the one word that he was looking for that would have spared the cat? Why did Jansen put the sandals on his head? And why did that signal to Nansen that he would have been the one who could have said the word, who could have spared the cat. Now, I've read a lot of different interpretations and and reasons why this is, and it goes really deep sometimes. It goes into life and death and the balance of of nature and the universe and, and the oneness of time and everything. 
And, uh, and it also points out that in ancient China, putting your sandals on your head was a sign of mourning. And so maybe he was mourning the cat. And all of these could be absolutely and perfectly true. But they also miss the point of what the koan is supposed to do. There's not supposed to be an answer to the koan. It's not supposed to be logically resolvable. It is supposed to take you on a journey. Take you to a place where you need to work out something by yourself. The whole idea was to call what the ancient Chinese called the great doubt. Don't you love that? These non sequiturs, these, these paradoxes, were supposed to cause the great doubt. Because the great doubt would then lead to a sudden flash of enlightenment, an insight, an intuition, that you would know that you know, that you were convinced of what you were convinced of, that something deeper had occurred. But no matter what these great interpretations were, they're still not achievable directly in a rational line from what the koan actually says. You can't do that. It was an insight that someone had taken, a leap that they had taken because... And for me, it's just words that go in and they're just thoughts in my head. They won't have the impact that they had for whoever had written that interpretation because that was their interpretation. The point of the koan is to muddle the mind, to take a break and break the rational flow, to create that great doubt and let doubt lead to a nonverbal enlightenment. I wanted to read just a little bit of an article that maybe can bring this point clearer. Because it's important that we understand the concept here because this is how Jesus teaches. This is exactly what he's doing. The mind is both the barrier and the gateway, the barrier and the gateway to enlightenment. In order to pass freely through, one need only abandon all cherished possessions. To those who see possessions as being material, this seems obvious and is akin to the, Chinese, to, to the Christian concept of a rich man trying to enter heaven with his riches as being like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. The possessions that cannot pa pass through the gateless gate are much less tangible. These are the possessions of the mind, conceptions, assumptions, opinions, understandings, facts, and conclusions that make up the excess baggage that prevents our free passage. Now, in actuality, Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. The riches that he tells the rich young ruler to sell is a metaphor for everything that he owned, everything that he thought was of value, everything that he'd been clinging to for his survival and his sustenance. So it's the same concept here, both in Jesus' teaching and here in the Koan. Like the security gates at the airport, the alarm sounds when we attempt to carry our unchecked baggage through the gate, and we are immediately stopped by the fearsome gatekeeper, unable to proceed thinking that the bags we carry with us are necessities for our comfort and survival, we refuse to leave them behind. Understanding our desire, the indomitable yet compassionate gatekeeper gives us the option of passing freely without the baggage, but stuck as we are in our own limited knowledge, we cannot imagine continuing on. How can we let go of what we believe when it is the foundation of our understanding? Surely we cannot be expected to pass through this checkpoint unarmed and unprotected by our theories and our reason. There must be some other way. We have learned so much and practiced for so long. Are we to, are we to abandon everything? Our education, our understanding, our teachers, our traditions, 
What of all our training and years spent on the meditation cushion? Wu Wen makes this clear. Wu Wen is the, the Japanese master who created the, the whole collection of koans. Wu Wen makes this clear from the very beginning. In his intro, he writes, those who try to understand through other people's words, those who try to understand through other people's words are striking at the moon with a stick. I love that image. What is gained from external circumstances will only perish in the end. To even raise these questions is to raise waves when there is no wind. How can they see reality as it actually is? The notions of education, understanding, traditions are the very mental mountains we are trying to penetrate. Nothing we know or believe will set us free. Nothing we know or believe will set us free. Freedom is only obtained by letting go of our conceptual baggage. Until we let go, it is impossible to go any further, and no amount of saying we know will avail. We may believe that we understand what we are reading or saying, but these beliefs are our barriers, the very baggage that will not go through the gate, much less to the other shore. This is not to say that we must know nothing, but rather that we should not remain attached to anything we know. In the end, it is our attachment to our so-called knowing that stops us dead in our tracks. This is exactly how Jesus teaches. This is exactly what he's doing. And so many passages of the Gospels read like koans. I'm going to take a look at a few of these. That means you're going to take a look at them with me, right? Luke 10. Starting at verse 25. Classic confrontation with Jesus, right? A lawyer stands up and put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Classic question, right? And Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Classic Jesus answer, right? Question for a question. Now, he probably can read the guy's body language and know what he knows what he's about. He's trying to put Jesus in a spot, in a bind. He's trying to one-up Jesus. But Jesus just turns it back, you know. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Same answer that Jesus gave when he was asked for the greatest commandment, Right? Same type of summary of the law and the prophets. Beautiful. Well done. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he's not done yet. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And he launches into the parable of the Good Samaritan question for a question, a story for another question. Notice what Jesus is doing here, though. To the first question, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus comes back to him, what do you read in the law? How do you understand it? And he gives him the correct answer. This is step one. This is where you have to start with obedience, obedience to the code, obedience to the macro code that allows a community to survive and thrive. The law is necessary for the group. But then step two, when the lawyer presses him further, is to break through mere obedience, to graduate from mere obedience, and move into radical acceptance 
of those that you understand as your enemies. Because if we remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, the man is beaten, he's lying on the side of the road, and a priest, a Jewish priest comes by, looks at him, passes by. A Levite, another Jewish authority, comes by, passes by. And it's the Samaritan, the hated one, the ones who were like blacks in 1950s Georgia to the Jews. They saw them as half-breeds. I guess in Harry Potter speak, they'd be mudbloods, but whatever. He is the one who actually stops and takes care of the man. It is breaking through those cultural limitations, breaking through the mindset. Okay, you got the obedience part down, but if you really want to press further, if you really want internal life, then you need to break through, leave all your baggage behind, break through all that ethnocentric stuff, and get to where you can see a Samaritan as equally your brother as a member of your own household. Can you do that? We don't get the answer of the lawyer. Now look at Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. Someone comes to him, and in other Gospels we understand that this is a rich young man who was also a man of authority. So sometimes he's called the rich young ruler. But then someone comes to him, the man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Same question, it's a little bit of a shift. What good thing must I do? What's the mindset, right? Mitzvah, what's the mindset? Doing the good deed, obedience, A plus B equals eternal life. What kind of thing can I do? What good thing can I do? And Jesus turns and says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Look what Jesus is doing there. Besides answering a question for a question, why are you asking me about what is good? He understands where the mindset is of the man. It's the mindset that, the, that is the problem here. He wants some kind of external rule that he can follow letter by letter that will equal the certainty of what he seeks, the outcome that he seeks. And Jesus is saying, what are you asking me about that? There's only one good, and that is your Father in heaven. Don't try to come through me. Go to your Father in heaven, and you will know what is good. But it's not going to be what you think. There's only one who is good, and that is your Father in heaven. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So he's back to step one again. Start there. Start at the basics. And then he said to Jesus, which ones? <laughs> always qualifying, always looking for more certainty, more certainty. Jesus isn't giving me what I want. He's not scratching the itch. Which commandments? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Now another gospel says that Jesus looks at him at this point and loves him because he knows how sincere he is. He has been keeping these commandments. But Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Step one, follow the commandments. Step two, maybe it's step three, radical acceptance, and now letting go of everything that we think we need for this journey. 
Are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to go through the emptying process, the stripping away process, to get down to the bottom of the dog pile so you can see what's actually happening? John 1, verse 37 The two disciples heard him speak. What two disciples? Well, we hear in just a couple more verses that Andrew is one of them. And most likely it's John himself, the writer, because he never identified himself throughout the entire gospel. So it's probably Andrew and John heard him speak. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They heard Jesus speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Simple question, right? Well, what does Jesus see? Come and see. What does Jesus say? Come and see. Simple question, but notice the answer. Not to give them a thought in their head, but to engage them into the journey. Come and see. Follow me and see. And that's exactly what they do. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Not telling, engaging so different. At Matthew 11, starting at verse 2, when John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Imagine John is the one who said, look who's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And yet while he's in prison, while he's hearing Jesus do all the things that he's doing, but not the thing that John expected. John was probably an Essene. The title expected one was the title of the Messiah that the Essenes used that was going to be a military title, a kingly title, a Messiah who was going to come and create a new sovereign nation and throw out the Romans. So Jesus isn't doing any of the political things, any of the military things that John expected. Are you the expected one? Or should we wait for someone else? Do you think Jesus is going to give him a straight answer on that one? He tells the disciples of John, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And that's a difficult translation for us there. But really what it means is, Blessed is the person who is not stumbled by what I present, who is not distracted, diverted, spun around, but can see through to exactly what I'm doing is the sense of that word there. Once again, Jesus is not telling. He's not giving them a straight answer. He's inviting them to engage with him, follow him, and see what he actually is doing. And each one of those healings, you got to understand, they're not just physical. To give sight to the blind is to open up people's eyes to be able to see conceptually something that they've never seen before, to hear new things, to work past the paralysis of their own fears to start moving again. If a leper is cleansed, a leper has had to stay outside the city gates. Community was barred from them as long as they had the disease. To heal a leper meant a person can go back into community, go back into their own homes, eat with their family again. The dead raised to life has obvious spiritual connotations. He's telling them, look what is going on here. Look how people are being turned back to the heart of the Father. What's the common theme between all of these four passages that we just read? And 
man, I had to do a lot of editing here. There are dozens of them, dozens of questions and answers with Jesus where he is, is teaching exactly the same way. But these stood out. What's the common theme? It's action. It's movement. Jesus is saying you're not going to get the answer statically sitting there and have it dropped into your head. You're going to get the answer in motion. When you move in, when you engage, when you start moving, then things are going to change. You're not going to get the answer the way you think you're going to get it, but you will get your answer. And finally, look at John 3, the famous John 3:16 and all of that, the famous uh, scene with Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come to Jesus by night because he's hiding the fact that he's going to Jesus, but he's full of questions. And Jesus says to him, finally, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this blows Nicodemus' mind because he's taking it rationally. He's taking it logically, the way we would as well, right? Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You can imagine just Jesus going, oh, really? Is this guy for real? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the interesting thing there, the word in Aramaic for wind and the word for spirit is the same word, ruha. It's also the same word for breath. So understand, spirit is understood to always be in motion. Just as wind, if it's not moving, it ain't wind. It's just air, right? If breath isn't moving, you're dead. The idea of spirit is it's always in motion. It never stops. Jesus says, you were born into water. You were born physically into the rational world. That's where you're living right now. But unless you can be born again into spirit, into this motion, to be able to hold paradox and let it not resolve, to be able to go into an intuitive place, to step into something that has no evidence, that's faith then you can't see the kingdom because the kingdom doesn't live in that rational place. And no matter how hard you try, and the harder you try to think about it, the farther away you will get because you're moving in the opposite direction. Nicodemus can't get his head around that because he's still thinking rationally. And then Jesus gives this last wonderful image. The constant motion of spirit, the constant motion that we must enter into if we're going to be born again, if we're going to be able to see spirit, is as the wind. Don't know where it's coming from, don't know where it's going to. You can hear the sound of it, but you can't see it. It's a mystery. It's an uncertainty. But if you flow with it, something is happening. What Jesus is telling us is that the Father and the Father's love is a moving target. It never stands still. And we can only hit it, we can only access it from a place of motion. This is so important for us to understand. We're not going to be able to do it any other way. 
Jesus is teaching in this very Eastern way. It's the mindset that we bring, the mindset from which we ask a question of Jesus that is the problem. Our minds, the way they work, always categorizing, always defining, always rationally trying to tie things down, is why we can't see what Jesus is trying to show us. We must move beyond the limitations of our mind into something much more expansive, much freer. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to do. And his style of teaching is to break the flow of the logic, to break the way that we are processing so that we can make an intuitive leap. We can go someplace else. If Jesus did give us the answers that we really want, a straight, direct answer, even if they're the right answers, and I would imagine Jesus would give us the right answer, right? What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with Jesus' answers? If we really get what we're asking for of Jesus, a straight, logical, rational answer, what are we going to do with it? We're going to think about it, right? No matter how good the answer is, it's still just a thought in our heads. We started with a thought, a question, and now we're ending with a thought, an answer. But it's still just a thought in our heads. How are we going to know, ultimately, if it's any more real than what we had before we had the answer? We can't know if it's just a thought in our heads. If all we do is think it, then we can unthink it. How many things have you thought and you thought were so true, and a day later you're rationalizing them and unwinding what you thought you had? Oh, we can basically rationalize anything, right? I saw a UFO. I know that thing was real. Well, a few days later, maybe uh, maybe it was just headlights off the clouds. I don't know. If it's just a thought, we can unthink it. If it's just a thought, we're going to end up doubting it. We're going to rationalize it away. I used to really stress over this notion of God's will, God's will for my life. How did I know what God's ultimate plan was for me so that I make sure that I'm on the right plan, Right? because he's not telling me, but I needed to know it. And so I would imagine all of these God's wills for my life. And I realized that my understanding of what God's will was for my life is exactly what I wanted anyway. It's amazing how that worked. God never wanted anything for me that I didn't want for myself. It's beautiful, bulletproof. But I couldn't distinguish ultimately God's will from my own desires, and I knew that that wasn't the way that it needed to go. Something else had to happen. I used to stress over prayer. Did prayer really work, quote unquote? You know? Did it really change things? Or was something else going on with prayer? In both these cases, God's will and prayer, I assumed that God was in the outcome. Note that. I assumed that God was in the outcome of his will, in the outcome of the prayer. And I measured, I measured success or failure based on my own desires, my own agenda. If that was met, it was a success. If not, it wasn't. Now, we all naturally assume that, don't we? Don't we assume that God is in the outcomes? That's what we're all after anyway. But I remember the first time that I really began to understand prayer. And I know I've read this journal entry for you before, but 
I had taken a break at work, and uh, I went to a little Mexican restaurant to get a burrito for lunch. And as I'm approaching the door, there's a flyer taped to it. And it was a missing girl from the East Coast, no less. And so I, I looked at the flyer, read all the, you know, the, uh, the particulars, and I'm kind of absorbing, you know, God, what would it be like for these parents? And as I walk in the store and I look at the back of the door, it had a, just a, you know, a sticky mailer on there. So it had been a mailing list that they had sent to. They were on the East Coast. They must have got a nationwide mailing list of venues like this little Mexican restaurant in Huntington Beach and mailed everywhere. And I could imagine them sitting on the floor and, you know, with the family and, and getting the list and printing the list and sticking all these on, putting postage and mailing them out. And I'm thinking of the desperation that they must have felt, you know, that their girl was missing and they didn't know where. Can you imagine anything worse and not knowing where your child is and who they're with and how they may be suffering if they're still alive. And all you can do is put labels on flyers and send to George's Mexican restaurant in Huntington Beach. And on the other side of the, of the, the restaurant, it was a takeout place. There was another one on the other door. And I got my burrito. And as I'm walking out, I'm still processing all of this. And all of a sudden, there was just this desire to pray. And I did. Walking back to my car across the parking lot. I just prayed. I prayed for those parents. I prayed for the girl. I even prayed for the abductor that there would be some semblance of compassion that would come over him or her. And in that moment, I understood it wasn't about the outcome of the prayer. It was the process of the prayer that connected me to my God to these people that I didn't know and would never meet, and to the, the human condition, the tragedy and the trauma of it. Everything connected, and I felt part of that human race that Merton talks about. I felt connected, and I realized that's it. Even intercessory prayer that I had such a problem with, it made sense to me at that moment because I wasn't looking at it through the prism of the outcome. I was looking at it through the actual process of just doing it. I put myself in motion and I experienced God's motion within me and around me. Everything changed. This man who started us off with the initial question, he wanted to know how he could know if God's love is real and not just in his head, not just in his thoughts. I found out that prayer was real and not just in my head or in my thoughts when I put it in motion. I sent an answer to him, and I want to read it to you just to see if we can lock this down. You asked how you really get in touch with God's love and know that it's not just a thought in your head. That's the perfect question, the big question. And you're doing it right now. You're answering it right now. It has to be an action you take with a bit or a lot of risk involved. You put yourself out there to another person, not just to unseen God. That's too easy. You know, always remember Frank when we started working together in recovery, and he said, in early recovery, if your higher power is just unseen God, you're not going to make it. It's not enough. How does unseen God hold you accountable? How does unseen God answer the phone when you're about to do whatever you're going to do and help you and go get a cup of coffee with you and talk you down off that ledge? How does that happen with unseen God? If your higher power doesn't recognize that the people around you are unseen God's hands and feet and you are 
working with that, submitting yourself to their instruction, can't make it. Same thing here. If we're going to put ourselves out to people, it's not just to unseen God that we're doing that. It's to each other. If God is who Jesus says he is, then he is present in the next person you meet, or he doesn't exist at all. But that next person has his or her own will and can reject you. That's the risk of being vulnerable. But it's the only way in which to practice love that isn't just in your head. What you did with me, calling me out of the blue, was an act of vulnerability. I could have blown you off. Texting me today, another one, reaching out to connect and see if anyone will reach back. And when they don't, to get back on the horse and do it all over again. To reach out because you have come to want to leave everyone you meet better than you found him or her. Whether in your closest relationships or just walking down the grocery aisle. That's it. Leaving people better, finding the desire to do so, is what makes God's love real to us. Only when it's in motion do we understand, experience the reality. We may doubt it again in the next moment, but when we put it back in motion, there it is. And after a few hundred times, we begin to trust that it will keep happening, and then our perception of reality begins to change. If you want to experience God's love, Outside of your own head, you need to get outside of your own head and connect with real people outside your familiar safe space. Rebuild community. Reach out. Get in motion and see what happens. You can't control what happens. You just let it happen. And in the surprise of that moment, you feel better. That somehow things really will be all right because there is a love that exists whether we recognize it or not. We can only know this truth that Jesus is trying to teach us in motion, on the way. We can only know that God's love is real as it's flowing between us and another. Think about it. We don't really love unseen God directly, do we? We love God by loving each other. That's what 1 John tells us. As love flows from us, we realize it's only flowing through us. It didn't start with us. We aren't the initiator of the love. We're the delivery device of the love, letting it flow through us. Just like this 1 John 4.19 that is our signature, at least I've made it my signature, right? We love because he first loved us. That's the realization we get. We're part of the flow And that's a beautiful place to be. I had another friend from the East Coast as well telling me about his middle daughter. She's an adolescent, young adolescent, pre-adolescent, I guess you would say. But the way he put it was interesting. He said, she has suddenly wakened to the fact, I hope this makes sense to you, she has suddenly wakened to the fact that life is actually happening, that it's really happening, that she is going to die, that everyone she loves is going to die. She's just wakened to the fact that this whole thing, the circle of life thing, it was kind of interesting the way you put it, that you know she would just suddenly 
have this understanding. And of course, it's created this existential crisis in her with all the fear and the stress and the anxiety and the depression that she's feeling. And my friend, of course, feels completely inadequate to try to help her with this. What does he say? What does he do? And it's caused an existential crisis in him, too, with all the fear and the stress and the anxiety and the depression because he doesn't know how to help her. And then he told me that the other night he was lying on the couch and she came and sat down next to him and he said she laid her head on his back. And I'm not sure logistically exactly how that worked as I try to picture that on the couch, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that she came and laid her head on his back, okay, thank you. She's showing me how it works. It was just a beautiful image absolutely beautiful image. I remember during my greatest existential crisis, we're going back 30 years now, when I couldn't feel like I could catch my breath and I didn't know which end was up and I was trying to figure out a reason to keep breathing. And I started going to the church that I ended up going to for years. And the pastor there was kind of a father figure. We all called him Papa Dick, you know, Pastor Dick, Papa Dick. I could go over to his house, because that's where we would meet. If it wasn't lunch, I'd go to his house. And he had a study in the back room. And I'll, I can close my eyes and still see that study. You know, kind of dark carpet and really cheap, you know, paneling, that, that wall paneling that's just press board with <laughs> all over the walls. So it's just like all dark walls and, and big bookcase and books everywhere. And he'd sit at his desk, and I'd sit in front of him. You know, I cannot remember a single thing he told me in any of those sessions that I went to. Whatever it was, it didn't stick. Whatever it was, it wasn't terribly profound, I guess, because I can't remember a thing that we talked about. What I do remember is for that 45 minutes that I sat in his office, I was safe. I knew that the wolves were baying outside the door, but for that moment, I was safe. I could breathe, I could relax, you know? Metaphorically, I could lay my head on his back and just be for a moment, fortify myself to go back out that door and start again. Ultimately, there's very little that we can transfer to another person of real value, intellectually, the information that we give to each other, but to create that connection to create that safe place. See, this is what my friend has done, and I told him, give yourself a bit of a break here, that she can come to you and lay her head on your shoulder, on your back, speaks volumes about what you are giving her as her confident captain. Even if you can't answer her questions right now, you've done the biggest part. It's already done. To give her a break, to give her a breath, to let her know that there's something that she can count on as she's trying to process all the uncertainty that suddenly has been opened up to her, just as that pastor did for me. There's nothing he can say to fix his daughter. There is nothing that pastor could have said to fix me. But he may be able to help by pointing her in new directions she hasn't considered. He may be able to show her with his own life as he continues to act as if he is the confident captain when he feels nothing like it, but he keeps showing up for the job over and over. We can only do that for each other, and Jesus can only do that for us. 
We can only point in directions that seem important to us. We can only tell each other what we're convinced of and encourage them to go find what they're convinced of. We can only sit there and put our sandals on our head. Not take ourselves too seriously. Become living koans that live in such a way that points in the direction that people really need to go to encourage others to do what we do because it's the only way to hit God's moving target, to hit the moving target of his love. We've been talking rituals here. Did you put that up there? Is that what you guys are all looking at? Yeah. <laughs> there I am with my sandal on my head. <laughs> For the last few weeks, we've been talking about rituals as being important for us to establish because rituals are what can help us to reprogram the rational mind by getting down into the unconscious part of our, of our brains. Rituals are important for that. I wanted to read you one last little bit, just a little short prayer. It's by Ignatius of Loyola, and uh, he was a 16th century Spaniard priest, theologian, He is the man who is responsible for founding the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. He also is famous for establishing a very uh, comprehensive and formal uh, system of spiritual exercises. And this little prayer he wrote is part of that that system. It's called the Sushipe, which in Latin means to receive. And it comes from the first word in Latin from the prayer. It's only five lines. But take a listen to this prayer and to what he's saying here. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace, and that is enough for me. That's it. But look what's happening here in this three-part prayer. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all I have and call my own. This is the letting go, right? This is the emptying, letting go of everything that we think we know, everything that limits us, everything that corrals our mind and disallows us from being able to see. This is a step of submission to letting something greater than ourselves take the helm. Then you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. The gratitude, the recognition of the flow of spirit that can't be exhausted. I give it back to you because I know that it's just going to continue to flow. I'm not going to dam it up. I'm not going to hold it in my distrust. I'm not going to try to dam things up and and, and miser them into bank accounts or, or some safe place. Flow. Be part of the flow with gratitude. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and grace, and that is enough for me. The action without certainty, without understanding of being able to just let the Spirit move, to move with the Spirit. This three-part prayer captures the way forward. 
I know some people who say this every time they leave their house. They have it written, and they just recite it. Kind of like the third step prayer and other prayers they have. It could become a ritual for us to remember those three phases of moving forward, of letting go of our death grip on the rational mind that limits us and disallows us from seeing what Jesus is trying to see. This is the process of moving out of our heads into the motion of love with each other to find the experience that leads to the conviction that leads to the sense of trust. Trust is where we need to go because it's in trust, finally, that we can learn to be content in all our circumstances. It won't happen without trust. And trust won't happen without experience. And the experience won't happen without the faith of just stepping out and seeing what happens as if those things we say we believe in our minds are true. God's love is a moving target. We need to move with it if we want to know that it's real and not just a thought. Let's pray. Mm. Father, thank you for the questions. Thank you for the, the community that we have, the, the give and take, the friends that make us put sandals on our heads and do strange things that take us into places that we just never expected. Thank you for the quickening of our spirits to pick things up at just the right time when we have a place to put them in our hearts and in our minds and to make sense, a little more sense of the world and life and the connection of it all. Keep our community strong in continuing to talk to each other, to ask questions, to show each other how we're living, to be transparent and vulnerable to each other so that we can learn from each other and move closer to you each and every day. But thank you so much for this community, these people who make life worth living, who give meaning and purpose by their very breath next to ours knowing that you are in the center of it all, Lord, makes it ultimately meaningful. Help us to go there. Help us to break through each and every day. Father, we love you. Thank you for your constant love. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.